A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Hello, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text friends. This week, we're sharing with you an interview I recently did with one of the people that Vanessa and I thank every week, Professor Stephanie Paulsell, who is our teacher, who is a brilliant and wise and kind person. I think Vanessa would agree with me that there's maybe nobody in either of our lives or both of our lives who has meant as much intellectually and spiritually as Stephanie. So you're going to hear this great conversation that I had with her recently. Also a reminder that if you would like to have conversations spiritually and intellectually enlightening conversations with Stephanie, she and another mutual friend of ours who is just as wise and intelligent, Amy Hollywood, another professor at Harvard, are going to be leading a pilgrimage. The pilgrimage will be in July of this year, 2023. You'll be reading the poetry of Emily Dickinson and walking around Amherst, Massachusetts with brilliant scholars and wonderful people. Vanessa will be there and you'll be with Stephanie and Amy as well. It really is a once in a lifetime opportunity to learn from great teachers and to study this beautiful collection of poetry in a beautiful setting. So go to readingandwalkingwith.com to book your spot. Hello, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. Hi, Harry Potter Sacred Text team. Hi, Vanessa, Matt, and the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. Hi there, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. I'm Matt Potts. I'm Stephanie Paulsell. 
and this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, Outpost Edition. Stephanie Paulsell, who you listeners of this podcast know very well, is joining me today. Stephanie is the Susan Shawcross Swartz Professor of the Practice of Christian Studies at Harvard Divinity School. She's also the faculty dean of Elliott House. She's been a mentor and teacher to both Vanessa and myself. For those of you who are patrons of our podcast, for your perk this week, you're going to hear a conversation between Vanessa and I about fun stories of Stephanie and what she's meant to us in our lives. So hang around for that if you are a Patreon supporter. But if you're not a Patreon supporter, you get to enjoy Stephanie herself for the rest of this episode as we talk about some of our work together here at Harvard and also respond to some voicemails from our listening community. So, Stephanie, on the podcast, especially the last season when we read about book two, we talked a lot about wizarding supremacy and how wizarding supremacy works in the wizarding world or in the world of Harry Potter. And as you can probably hear from that name, I think we're using an analogy of wizarding supremacy to kind of help us think about or think about white supremacy and other forms of supremacist thought. I have some misgivings about that analogy because I think the analogy is imperfect and maybe we can talk about (laughs) why that's imperfect. We used it to kind of think about how ideologies of supremacy and supremacism work. And one of the reasons it came up a lot for us in our reading of this second book, The Chamber of Secrets, is because we learned something about the history of Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. We learned that the school was originally founded by these four founders, and then Salazar Slytherin tried to break away because he believed that only purebloods should be educated, only purebloods should be taught magic and should be trained. And the other three founders disagreed with him, and then in response, he built this chamber of secrets within the walls of the building, which would be sort of this place which would house and contain, but also keep safe this legacy, this history of supremacy, wizarding supremacy. And, you know, Vanessa used a phrase, which I think is the right one, which is that sort of wizarding supremacy is built into the very walls of Hogwarts School. Like it's in the wall. It's part of the place itself. You can't can't actually get rid of it without getting rid of the whole thing because it's in the walls. And now the reason I have this kind of long preface to our conversation is because within the last couple of weeks, the institution you and I both work for, Harvard University, which is a fairly well-known and established and important and influential institution in the world, released a report on the legacy of slavery at Harvard. And I think that the university and members of the university community are still processing this report. It's well over 100 pages. It tries to document as clearly as possible the deep, deep ties to slavery that Harvard had in its early history and its deep ties to white supremacy beyond that early history. And I just wanted to kind of chat with you about it and get your impression about that report, what it means, and especially what it means for those of us who are part of this community and who are still working in it and also trying to work against that history. Yeah, well, I haven't read the whole report. I've seen the film that the committee created to accompany the report. That's really very much worth taking a look at. It's about 20 minutes long. And I read your piece on the Memorial Church website, which I thought was great and really, I think, gave language to how I was feeling, which is just, you know, sorrowful and outraged and ashamed. And, you know, it's this is part of Harvard's history, but this is also American history. And I'm an employee of Harvard and I'm an American. And, you know, it's heavy and it's challenging. 
And I think it is going to take a while to process. The, the report came out right at the end of the semester as students were heading into reading period and exams. And I feel like they and we have not yet had a chance to fully take it on board. It's going to have to be the beginning of something, not the end of something, this report. Obviously, we want to bring this history out into the light. We want to know it. We want yeah. to look at it. We want to we want to memorialize it in some way. And so how do we keep this history before us while at the same time making Harvard more welcoming to people and less traumatizing right. to people in its materiality? So I, I just think that's a very difficult question. In terms of my own work at Harvard, Charles Eliot had a whole section in the report. And the report says he has a paradoxical inheritance. And Charles Eliot was, he was the president who made Harvard a modern research university. The Harvard we inhabit is the Harvard he created. And he was a president for longer than any other president. And he's everywhere. His name is on every bridge, on the gates, on an undergraduate house, everywhere. And the undergraduate house that you are the head of also, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we had talked yeah. about Charles Eliot earlier in the year at our Charles Eliot dinner where you know, we talked about how he, you know, he hired black faculty. He, W.E.B. Du Bois graduated when Charles Eliot was president. At the same time, Charles Eliot was, like a lot of people at Harvard at that time, very enthusiastic for eugenics and very against any race mixing. In fact, he didn't think French people should marry German people. You know, he didn't think <laughs> Catholic people should marry Protestant people. He, he did, you know, much less black and white people. So, his legacy is really, really mixed. And, and so how do you yeah. disentangle that? And I think at Elliott House, that's something that kind of falls to us in this moment to really be talking about and thinking about and inviting conversation among all the members of our community about. Because when we talked about it at the Charles Elliott dinner, some students didn't know that. And, yeah. you know, at our house committee meetings, one of the traditions is that you, so one student is in charge of bringing a fact about Charles Eliot and we dim the lights and, you know, they tell the, you know, they give a quote or they tell a little story and they, they just stopped doing it. It was too painful to do. And we have a slogan, Floriat Domus de Eliot, which is let the house of Eliot flourish. And, you know, we're, we're trying to talk about how when we, call for the flourishing of Eliot, we mean our community and all its incredible diversity that would make Charles Eliot, you know, maybe spin in his grave. But That's right. And how do we, you know, how do we resist what needs resisting, which is a lot yeah. of his legacy, while inhabiting our community with responsibility and also with joy and with love for yeah. each other. Yeah. I think the the report is out. There's been a conference and it's landed, but I think we've only just, just begun barely to grapple yeah. with what it means. Yeah, I think that, that question of memorialization is so, so difficult and so important because it seems like there's no way to do it without, I mean, the, the past is very painful. It must be remembered, but it can't be remembered without causing pain. But also we have a responsibility not to, cause pain to these folks upon the labor of whose ancestors this place was built, right? I, it really is tricky. I mean, Wadsworth House, which I think is the oldest building on the yard, has the names of four folks who were enslaved in that house on a plaque on the side of the building, which is, you know, to lift up the names of those who did help build this place. That's part of it. But without erasing the more violent history, it is really complicated. 
the historians who worked on this report found evidence of over 70 people who were enslaved at Harvard or by Harvard faculty early in its history. And, and a lot of the report does some work exposing and uncovering that history and bringing those names to light. One of the things that happened at the conference you mentioned is that those names were read and and named in front of communities so we could lift up these names and try to bring them into memory. But a lot of the report is just talking about how after Harvard was no longer actively enslaving people, how much of its wealth, and Harvard is a very, very, very wealthy place, how much of its wealth was built upon the labor of enslaved peoples in the Caribbean and how many of the wealthy people who gave their money to Harvard built that wealth upon enslaved labor of people elsewhere in the world. And that's a different kind of chamber of secrets, right? We get to pretend it's not in the building. We get to pretend that we don't have a secret chamber in the basement of Wadsworth or Elliott House or whatever. But actually we do. It just, it's somewhere else. And global capitalism at the time facilitated this kind of secrecy. And it still does. And and that's one of the things I think you're right, that this is the beginning of a process. These Ties are deep and foundational, and there really isn't a way to uproot them. We have to to name them and then just do better going forward, right? Do be more responsible, do better with what we have, and recognize that the wealth and influence we have has to be wielded towards better things in the in the future. The position I was in at the university felt like one that made sense to me because I'm a minister of the church here, and that it seemed like I could stand on a particular kind of moral theological position from where I stood, the message that you wrote, it was, I felt very comfortable using the language of grief and repentance because that comes out of my tradition. I know you're a minister as well, uh, Stephanie, but in your role at the university, you're kind of like the Professor McGonagall of Harvard, right? You're a beloved professor, but you're also the head of a house, right? And, And your responsibility is somewhat different and you need to serve students in a different way than I do when you encounter students and meet students at a different place. You know, students who come to me in my office for pastoral counseling are there to see their pastor. When they come to you, they're talking to their to their head of house, right? So I'm, I'm just curious, this report emerged right at exam time. What sort of reaction you had from students? Were you surprised by any students' reactions? Or did you find any students surprised by the history that was documented? Well, the day the report came out... We showed the film in the house. Because the reports are secret until they come out, we had to just advertise it that morning. And the the minute the report came out, we advertised our our film. So students had a few hours to maybe read their email, which they don't always do, and come if they wanted. But we did get a pretty diverse crowd, um, students from lots of different cultural backgrounds, international students, lots of different kinds of students. And, and it was run by two of our tutors who are sort of the core of our, what they call at Harvard, our race relations team. And we sat in there for about an hour and a half and talked about it afterwards. And I think the main, and I I hear this from other people as well who are working with students, I'd say the main question, the immediate question is, what is Harvard going to do? What are we going to do? Are there going to be reparations? Are we going to figure out who descended from the enslaved people that built the wealth of this university. How are we going to respond? What material thing are we going to do? And the report's not super specific about that. And I hope that more specificity will, you know, develop over time as the wisdom of the whole community is brought to bear on it. But that, to me, that was the main response. It was a very pragmatic response. It was, what are we going to do? Students at Harvard, I don't think they 
are laboring under a sense that, you know, slavery only happened in the American South. But I do think the impact of the Caribbean, I do think that was new for a lot of people. And and the sense of, oh, wow, I'm responsible for that, too. You know, like that this is an intermeshed system and it's international. Yeah. And my story is part of that story. And that story is part of my story. And and I think that's overwhelming both for the students whose ancestors were enslaved and who feel this history in their bones as rage as a sorrow beyond which it's hard to imagine. And also students who, you know, whose families might have been enslaving people. It it's yeah. it feels vast because it was vast and it affected yeah. millions of lives. The harm is incalculable. And so kind of holding that from whichever location you're in, I think is hard. Yeah. But I think, you know, the question of, you know, having that feeling of I was never meant to be here. I was never meant to see the art on the walls. I was never meant mm-hmm. to be in this library. I, that, that's so painful. And I think the, the yeah. only way to respond to that is not through not telling the story. I think it's through yeah. hiring more black faculty, hiring more black administrators, exactly. having art on the walls that reflects the whole history of Harvard, that tells the whole story yeah. of Harvard. Um, and of course, having a really, truly diverse student body. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's right. We need to go through it together. If you're part of Harvard, it's part of you. So there's nobody who around here can stand outside of it. And I think we need to keep remembering that so we don't try to stand outside of it. Yeah. And that's, and as you said, like all this I had that reaction as well from people who, in their reaction to the report, and, I, and my personal reaction too was like, okay, what are we doing about it, <laughs> right? Because I think you're right. I think for folks who pay much attention, we would have been naive to think that Harvard didn't have deep ties to, to slavery and that its wealth wasn't built on the on the backs of enslaved people. The real question is, knowing that, having documentation of it, now what do we do with it? And, and, you know, the university pledged a, a lot of money, the biggest gift, such gift, I think. Um, but we have the most wealth of any such institution, so it probably ought to be the biggest such gift. And the details that are coming are are ones that, that are intended to be worked out with input from lots of stakeholders, including the descendants of those that were enslaved by this institution. And so, I you know, some of those things are always, it's always me a little unsatisfying because they're, they, they're going to require partnership and deliberation and, and working with implicated folks. They're also going to be unsatisfying, and I, I believe that that the university's response to the report said this as well, they're also going to be unsatisfying because they're never going to be sufficient, right? I think that whatever the institution could do could never make up for the harm and the pain it caused. And that also has to be part of what we own, and we have to name that as well. Not let that keep us from making those reparations, but also recognize that an act of reparation is not making it go away like it never happened. It's it's an act of reparation. It's a it's an attempt to heal something. It's not an undoing of a of a deeply broken past. Yeah. That's right. That's right. It's you know, it's like you ask in your book on forgiveness, how do we not change our feeling about what happened to us or what happened to others, but how do we live with it and move forward with it into the future in a way that resists the 
white supremacy and the rest of it that caused these yeah. harms. Yeah, and in, in the book, right, in my book, part of the answer is, is you have to remember, like, forgive and forget's a lie. Any kind of forgetting is just, is pretending that a broken past isn't broken, yeah. Well, thanks, Stephanie. I've been, I've been hoping to talk with you about this, and I'm glad that we got together on a recording and had a chance to talk about it some more. So thank you for the conversation, and also thank you for being a, a partner in this work here at Harvard going forward. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is Me Undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some Me Undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of Me Undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. And now we're going to respond to some voicemails from listeners. Our first voicemail is from an anonymous caller. Hello, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. I'm 14 years old and would prefer to stay anonymous. I'm currently at the start of the book one reread with Matt and would first like to preface this by saying that this is a very muddy area 
And I'm not saying that any of Petunia's actions are okay, and I don't really know where to go with this. However, listening this time through and going through the scene where Harry was dropped off at the Dursley's doorstep without any proper reflection of what was best for him or Petunia, I was reminded of people who are not given a choice to get an abortion when they seek one. Petunia, in a sense, is not given a choice of whether or not she wants this child. Therefore, Harry must grow up in a home where he is unwanted. To Petunia, he is a symbol of her sister's death and the fear she has of the muggle world, and every day she is reminded of this through him. I wonder if she had been given a choice on whether or not to keep Harry, and Harry ended up in proper care in a loving home. She would have a lot less resentment and hate in her, and Harry would grow up without having to deal with the trauma in this home. I wanted to offer a blessing not to Petunia because I think she could have made much better choices in this situation, although I empathize with her, but a blessing to people who are not allowed to dictate what they choose to do with their body. These restrictions can lead to a lot of hate in the world. I also wanted to give a blessing to Harry and anyone who has had to grow up in a home where they feel they are unwanted and remind you that you are loved and wanted and have a place on this earth. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Anonymous Caller. I think the gift that you have given us in your very compassionate reading of that scene is a sense of the complexity of every single life which is what I think a lot of the conversation around abortion in our country really lacks, an inability to imagine what other people's lives are like. So thank you very much for lifting that up. Yeah, thank you, Stephanie. That was really well said, and I totally agree. And, and thank you, caller, for a really perceptive reading of that initial scene in Harry Potter and for using it to help us think with more compassion and complexity about about our own world. Our next voice memo is from Callie. Hi, Harry Potter Sacred Text team. Your episode on book three, chapter seven with burnout kind of gave me a light bulb moment. You were talking about how Snape just picks on Neville relentlessly and you related it to Harry being around. But I'm wondering if it's actually about Neville himself. So at the end of book five, Dumbledore tells Harry he might not have been the chosen one in a different world, and if Voldemort had made a different choice, he might have attacked the Longbottoms, and it could have been Neville. Being that Snape is Dumbledore's spy, he might know the same thing. So to Snape, Neville might be this human reminder of what he can never have. Had Neville been attacked instead, Lily Potter might still be alive. He might still have time to reconcile that relationship it's just the worst possible living reminder for him. When I was a teenager, I kind of had a similar experience. Um, my dad was hospitalized with some serious medical issues, and my mom was with him all the time as his advocate. And thank goodness she was, because he made it through. But while they were away, uh, she hired a woman to kind of take care of me, and I just resented her. She was lovely, but she was a human reminder that my parents couldn't be with me, and I had to reckon with that. 
I lashed out like a scared, angry teenager, and I regret it all the time. But I do want to give a blessing to Neville and to anyone who is an accidental human reminder of someone's worst or most painful memories. You don't deserve the abuse you take for it, and you are more than their worst moments. Thank you guys so much for the podcast and making me think deeper about everything in my own life. I just noticed that um, our whole conversation today and these two voicemails are about reminders and memory and, yeah, how we live with it and what kind of response do memories evoke from us and who's punished. Callie, I, I hear in your voice how badly you feel about your own memory, and I hope you can forgive yourself now for it. I think, you know, obviously the way that you are moving into the future with this painful memory of fearing that you have caused pain is by being more compassionate, and I find that very inspiring, so thank you. Yeah, thank you, Kelly. And I'm glad that the person that that cared for you in that time was a, as you said, a, a lovely person, and and not someone like Snape, because it sounds like that person understood that what you were going through meant that you might lash out, and that was okay because, of course, you would. So I hope too that you can forgive yourself. And I also just want to say that what a brilliant reading of Snape's animosity towards Neville, because I had never thought of that, but it totally makes sense. Because if it had been the Longbottoms instead. All that went wrong for, for Snape would not have gone wrong. And that, of course, in his psychology, of course, he has this resentment. And that, that's such a perceptive reading. And I'm so glad you shared it with us and with our listeners. Thank you, Kelly. Our next voicemail is from Jamie. 30 second recap of The Lion King. Ready, set, nope. Ready, set, go. <laughs> Simba is the baby lion. His dad is the king of the Pride Lands, and he's going to be the king someday. It's all good, except his uncle is bad, and he's like, Simba, you killed your dad because his dad died because Scar set him up. So Simba becomes vegetarian, and then his girlfriend comes and is like, uh, hey, why aren't you the king? And he's like, I don't know. I live in the woods, and I eat worms now, and that's cool. And she's like, come back and save us. He's like, okay. And he fights Scar, and then he's the king, and him and his friend get married. Hi there, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. My name is Jamie Alberts, calling in from Newton, Massachusetts. Uh, my coworker Olivia and I decided to do a March musical bracket. It's like a March madness bracket, except instead of for basketball, it was for musical theater. And our eighth graders got to vote to see who was winning. Um, and we decided the way to teach them about all these musicals was to do a 30-second recap inspired by you guys. And wow, that is harder than it sounds when you're just listening to them. Matt, props to you, my friend. Um... <laughs> we had a great time, and I think the kids enjoyed it, too. We also played a song from each show. Don't worry, it wasn't just us doing the 30-second recap. Um, and uh, we thought you might enjoy listening to ours. Uh, you should also know that the ultimate winner was In the Heights. Surprisingly, Hamilton lost out in the first round. We were quite shocked by that, but In the Heights made it all the way. These recaps are from a day we did The Lion King. I was generally pretty good at the recaps, but today was not my day. 
Hope you enjoy. Thanks so much for all you do, inspiring our teaching and all the other things that we do with your excellent and informative podcast. Thank you. Jamie, thank you so much for vindicating me <laughs> to our listenership. I, I think the, the great gift of Casper and Vanessa both is that they made the 30-second recap sound easy. That they, right? It, they are so hard. <laughs> They're so hard. And I'm glad that, that you and your students out in Newton, Mass, got a taste of their fun and their challenge. And also just congratulations to you for, for your creativity and for being a teacher and for teaching with such creative pedagogy and and engaging your students in such fun and creative and interesting and exciting ways. I wish I were in your class. <laughs> and, I, and I know that every student that's in your class is grateful to be there. So thank you. Jamie, I'm just sorry Vanessa's not here to uh, celebrate <laughs> this because she would absolutely love uh, musical theater 30-second recaps. Um, Brava, that's great teaching. Wonderful. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Vanessa, what's your favorite Taylor Swift album? Folklore. What's your favorite Taylor Swift album? Evermore. Ooh, so close to being right, but wrong. Now, see, I was taking a completely different interpretation of our favorite albums because we're in the same era, uh -huh. but we have different favorites. It's, I think it's why we have such great conversations, because we have similar sympathies and tastes, but we there's enough difference to make it interesting. I don't know why it has to be about winning and losing. You're right, Matt. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. <laughs> Matt, I do feel like there are some listeners who just heard that and were like, I think that Matt and Vanessa are talking in a secret code, but the rest of you are Swifties. And for you, we have an incredible pilgrimage coming up with Margaret H. Wilson. I am also going, and your wife Colette Potts is also going, because you could try to keep us away from a Taylor Swift pilgrimage, but you would fail. This is going to be on Cape Cod at this beautiful place called Auto Camp. And so we are going to go to this beautiful landscape and talk both about folklore 
and Evermore because they are complimentary albums. And we're going to reflect on questions like, what does thinking about my life as a story allow me to see in a different way? Or do I have stories or memories that might be easier to share in a fictional framework? And what fables do I wish existed to guide me right now? So if you love close reading, if you love Taylor Swift, if you would love to go on a pilgrimage, you should come and look into this. Go to readingandwalkingwith.com to claim one of our very few remaining spots on this great trip today. That's readingandwalkingwith.com. Our last voicemail today is from Erica. Hi, Vanessa, Matt, and the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. I just got done listening to the Chapter 7 episode on burnout. Ever since becoming a teacher, I've had a renewed view of the teachers at Hogwarts, and I've used them as a guiding post on how to be the best teacher I can be. After listening to this episode, I just want to thank you so much for it, because I felt very seen in it, and it really helped me process my feelings about what I've been going through the past few months. In January, I started a long-term substitute teaching position. It was difficult from the start, but continued to get worse, and my mental health deteriorated with each passing month until a couple of weeks ago, I knew I had to quit because I couldn't keep going. In your podcast, you put into words so many of the ideas I was having, but couldn't put into words. First, you said that burnout leads to not reacting in the ways you feel most proud of. Because of my bad mental health, I would react to my students in ways that I'm truly embarrassed of, which then led to worse mental health and it became a vicious cycle. You also talked about the other things that teachers have to deal with. With this job, I worked 60 hours or more per week with pay that couldn't even cover my basic living expenses. Um, when I put into the hourly wage, I made less than minimum wage. I also did not receive benefits like getting paid for spring break or health insurance. Students made fun of me. And even when I went home, some students commonly prank called me because they found my number online. Also, the discussions about Lupin and Snape really struck a chord with me because I feel like before this job, I was more Lupin, but during this job, I unfortunately had more in common with Snape. I'm sorry this has been so long, but going back to where I started, thank you, thank you, thank you for this podcast episode. It helped me immensely as I am going through a difficult time in my career, and it helped me gain clarity and process my emotions. Erica, thank you so much for your voicemail. I have to say I felt the same way about that episode. It was such a relief to have language given to what I think a lot of, of us are feeling at this point in the pandemic, burned out. And I also appreciated Matt and Vanessa reflecting our shared experience back to us in that way. It, it's, it's liberating. It gives us language to say what we're proud of, what we're not proud of. 
as you have done. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I really hope that that you're able to get some rest, some really deep rest, and read the things you want to read and be with the people you want to be with and experience some healing in the coming weeks and months ahead. I know you're a great teacher, and I look forward to the day when um, teachers make the money that they should and are supported in the ways that we all need to be supported. So thank you so much. Yeah, Erica, thank you so much for sharing that story with us. And I'm I'm just really sorry that you went through this experience. It seemed I mean, really courageous of you to, to take this role in January, a long-term substitute. It seems like a very difficult and challenging thing. And I commend you for, for meeting that challenge. And I, I know that you said you're not proud of every moment of your teaching during that time, but you should be proud of your willingness to undertake what was certainly a, a challenging task. And I'm sorry it was so painful. Um, but like Stephanie, I, I know that, that you are a great teacher. And after a period of rest and restoration, you can come back to teaching, come back to yourself, and come back to your career in a way that you feel good about and, and feel proud of. I also just really thank you for putting concrete words and experience to a lot of what we maybe discussed in that episode. And what I've seen, you know, I have I have a 8, 10, and 12-year-old, what I've seen in schools, which is a lot of really great people, really great teachers who are just burdened and and overworked by a global pandemic and and more need than any single person could possibly serve. And and these folks and you among them give all they can to try to meet that need. Uh, and we as a as a people do not say thank you enough, either materially or even verbally. <laughs> so so thank you, Erica, and I'm sorry for what you've gone through and, and I hope that you're arrested and recovered soon. Well, thanks so much, Stephanie, for joining us today on this Owl Post. I feel like you and I are both so busy, we hardly ever get to just kind of sit around and chat. And so this was just fun for us to sit around and chat. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. This has been a Not Sorry production, and Not Sorry is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited by Malika Gunpankum and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisal and Nick Bull. And we are distributed by ACAST. Special thanks this week to Stephanie Paulsell for joining us and for being Stephanie Paulsell, and also to all of you who sent in voice memos to which we responded this week. Thanks also to Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Gabby Iori, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Terkyle, and Stephanie's friend and mine, Vanessa Zoltan. Thanks, everyone. Bye.